You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I had a confession to make. Uh, if I did gain weight since the last Sunday, it was all having to do with pies. I don't know what it was, but I was obsessed with the pies this year. Anybody else here love pies? I skipped the ice cream just so I can have extra space for pie. Uh, and, and every year I feel like I have a different, you know, approach to Thanksgiving, different strategy, if you will. Uh, I feel like I told the sound booth back there that I've matured a little bit. And I don't say, I don't say mature anymore. I say mature because that's the more mature way to say mature. Uh, and so I, um, I, I had a, apparently it was a mincemeat pie. I just called it blueberry pie because it looked like blueberry to me, but uh, it had raisins and, and dates in it. And, uh, and I actually, I actually, you should be proud, got into the cranberry sauce this year, which I feel like is a very distinguished thing to put on your plate when you have cranberries. It's just the finer things, more than the mac and cheese, you know? I don't know what it is. But anyways, every year kind of gets me, gets me a little bit different. Uh, and, uh, and this Thanksgiving was, was no different. My kids fell asleep under the tree last night. We successfully put the tree up, and uh, they fell asleep under the tree, which is just which was, well, they were asleep early, which was awesome. Uh, but then also the fact that it was a great Polaroid moment, you know, in my home. So anyways, um, yeah, we've been, uh, we've been in a series uh, in Genesis. I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 7. And, um, and if you're new here, we, we make it a point to read through whole books of the Bible. Um, we are currently reading through the first book of the Bible called Genesis, which just means in Hebrew, the beginning. Um, and it's been really cool, I think, to look at the idea of God and man as the name of this, uh, as the name of the, of the series of before religion and before the law and before, um, even, even before, before the covenants, before there was a tabernacle, before there was, um, you know, r- ritual and structure given around the relationship between God and man, there was just God and man before all those things. And at the essence of this book is this story, this picture, I think, of, of what it is for God and man to dwell together or, or be separated from one another. And if you look on the screen, uh, some of the highlights of the last couple of chapters, I've divided them into segments from the creation to the fall to the rescue and then ultimately the redemption. Um, they, they, they're telling this story ultimately of, of a man that's made in God's image that, that longs and desires to be back to God. I heard it said one time that all really man wants is peace. They just, they want, they want a sense of, of, of rest uh, and 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 ultimately, um, despite all of that desire, there seems to be such a restlessness in man, right? Is that there seems to be this unease and for all the purpose that we desire and the rest, we can't seem to find it. And we look for it in all these different places. And, and so the origin story of Genesis is, is talking about that. It's talking about each and every one of us, the desire to come back home. You know, it wouldn't be for the money or for the fame or for the ambition or the sex of the money or whatever. It's, it's for the peace is what we're all so agitated for. And so we get a glimpse of that in this story. It's the picture of God who doesn't make any images of himself. I mean, what kind of a God wants to be known and then doesn't give you an image or something that could substantiate who he is? Uh, he says, you're not gonna make any images of me. But then he goes ahead and actually does make an image of himself. And the image is you and I. We are the image of God. We are created to look like him and be like him and walk like him and extend his rule and reign into the garden. Which, which, which failed because ultimately, not because of God, but because of us, God created people to, to, uh, to, have, to have choice. Uh, he didn't want robots and he didn't want statues and trinkets to give him glory and honor. He wanted a shared garden. And he created man and, and woman 
two uh, equals in covenant love united to try and extend into the creation what God is like, a sideways-facing mirror that could, that could tell the creator what the creation is like and tell the creation what the creator is like with everything that they did. And, and they fell for a lie. They, 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 they did not settle to live in that place of, of Eden, that place of God dwelling with man. Instead, they chose against it to make their own decisions and choose their own autonomy in the place of relationship. And so, and so the whole thing kind of spiraled um, out of control. So in this, in this segment that we're looking at, which is ultimately really long, it's three chapters long. Have you realized this? Like, they're talking about the creation of the world in one chapter, all of it, the trees, the stratosphere, everything, all the, the soil and the gold and the minerals, they're, they're saying it in one chapter. And then for three chapters, there's just this parade of flood and water and chaos. Like, like what's going on in that? There's this really long, intentional, purposeful passage of scripture. I mean, they want you to understand, or the writer wants you to understand um, what ultimately happens as the long-term residual outcome of, of just constant, continual sin of, of corruption is what the, what the scripture says in Genesis. And so what, what's going to become of this? And uh, I made fun of last week my, my wonder list. My wonder list is just my to-do list, if I didn't clarify. I had 106, 106 items on there. And, uh, and uh, I actually have only like 98. So I guess I'm moving forward, you know, in my, in my, in my chaos. But I, I talked about the to-dos of life, sometimes um, representing, I think, the, the chaos that we can't quite get the settle, settlement on the thing. We can't quite find shalom or rest or Sabbath that God had on day seven. We can't find that rest. God had it, but we, we don't have it because of the situation we're in. And so all of this kind of culminates into what the Bible says is this flood. And there's three chapters of this thing. And he wants us to understand what this thing is about. Um, it, it is not just, not just the devil under every rock just causing all these problems. No, it's, it's the cooperation of man and and spiritual evil, the cooperation over years, over years, over years, adding, adding, adding until it hits a tipping point. It spills over into all, all of our lives, not just into to-do lists, but into cancer and into infidelity and divorce and all sorts of calamity that goes on. And so, so the question has to become for us, how can we be rescued? That's what the, that's what the whole segment is about. How, how can we find rest in this perpetual cycle of chaos and revenge? I was in a small group the other day and uh, Stephen Lewis, um, our, 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 our lead elder, he did such a great job leading this uh, conversation um, on chapter five. He got like the most boring short straw of the, we rotate how to, you know, leading through the passages. So he pulled Genesis five and it's just a list of names. Were you guys here for that day? And I just ran through a list of names and there was like Seth's line and there was like Cain's line. And, and so uh, he did a great job with it from one teacher to another. He just took the one thought and concept, and it just really just kind of marinated on the room, I think. And so he asked this question. Maybe you'd ask yourself this question. Have you ever known somebody that just walks with God? He took a, a, one of the lines, and we'll look at the passage in a moment, out of Ephesians 5, and it goes through all the lists of all the names. I can't even remember all of them, but Seth had this person and this person. They lived for 900 some odd years. And then this guy Enoch lived, and what the Bible says is that Enoch walked with God, and he walked with God so... Um, so faithfully, I guess would be the word, so uh, concurrently that he just walked out of earth into um, something else. I mean, all the other names and names and names and names and dead and dead and dead and dead and dead. And then there was Enoch and he walked with God and he lived. And so Stephen's point was, what does it mean to walk with God? Do you know somebody that walks with God? Do you know somebody that, um, you know how when you get closer to people, sometimes you're less impressed with them? Like you can see somebody from afar or meet them at a first impression and they're awesome. 
and they're shiny and, 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 and they have, you know, they're bubbly and their personality is awesome. And they're just, oh man, you're so much not like all these other people. And then you kind of get to know them or maybe you walk with them longer and you're less and less impressed. But then there's that person, right? That somehow when you get closer to them and you walk with them longer, you're more impressed with the way they live their life. You've seen them maybe under fire, under criticism, under, under attack or critique. Have you seen somebody that walks differently? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's not just about what they're saying. It's, it's what you see in their life that continually in and out of season seem to be generating a different kind of narrative. Do you know somebody like this that walks with God? I have a, a pastor right now. I continually bring this up because I think it's just heavy on my heart, but the pastor that I grew up under, Mark Beeson in Granger, Indiana, um, just a faithful guy, started church in a, in a theater just like this and multiplied it, and, and it was like 10,000 people, and it was this awesome thing. And he just had this very simple message. You know, he just talked about, like, when you put your feet in this direction, you walk towards this direction, you're going to head this direction. And you put your feet towards this direction, you walk towards this direction. And he's always telling me, I remember as a high school kid, if you walk in this direction, you can't end up in that direction. I mean, you know, these people are just these strong kind of leaders and personalities that are gifted. But, but the thing about it is he wasn't just a great communicator, just a great leader, like, you walked with him, and the more you walked with him in camp and in staff meetings and in internships, it was like you were more impressed with not just his speech, but his life. The message his life was giving. And so I've been talking about this lately. It's been on my heart, but he has stage four um, pancreatic cancer. Uh, currently, his immune system is, is just shot. And, um, and so it was very, very quick. He got sick on a trip in Israel and just had to, had to fly home. And, and I thought of his name when, when Stephen brought that question up. Who walks with God? Who, who reminds you of somebody that walks with, with, with God? I, I, I listened to his last message. I probably won't, he probably won't preach another message, but I just remember he said, you just want to fling your life on Jesus. This is his message that he keeps talking about. The best is yet to come. God has got this, and you want to fling your life on Jesus. If there's one thing that my life can speak to you, I, I, I encourage you to fling your life on Jesus. And this is a guy who just has nothing to gain from, it's, it's not about the church numbers. You know, you see that. Like, when, when the crisis hits, it doesn't create the character, it reveals it. And, and, and it's not about the church numbers to him, and you can see it and feel it in the way that he talks. It's about the people it's about the names, not the numbers. It's about the love of God and the love of people and a life lived faithfully. That's all that he ever, ever cared about. And so Stephen did such a great job as he wrapped up the, the, the study the other week. It was, like, it was like, ultimately, the people that are walking with God, they, they aren't so um, infatuated uh, with, with, with the idea of even ethics, or, or Bible knowledge, although people that walk with God are very ethical, right, usually, and they usually know a lot of the Bible, and they're, and they're not in church, you know, it's not about being in church for every moment of the day and every second, it's about something deeper than that, it's something more than that. Some people, they go to church because they want to raise their kids in the right way, some people go to church because they see injustice in society, and they want a platform to stand on that maybe suggests hope towards a brighter future, or some people go to church because they, they want to have power, and they want to see significance and meaning, and they want to give their life to something bigger than themselves, and as we find out the people that are like Enoch, these people that walk with God, they don't, they don't live for these types of things at the core of their message of their life, the Mark Beesons. And, uh, and, and for Stephen, he brought up his dentist of, of all people. It's like, it's like they just love God. They just love God. And so that's what this passage in, in, in Genesis 5 hyperlinks us to. You know the Bible is, is written almost like a website. You can click on different buttons and they hyperlink. They hyperlink to different things. And you're meant to read the Bible thoroughly, deliberately, over and over, backwards, forwards, forwards, backwards. And that's how it's meant to be read. It's meant to be kind of a relationship that, that we have, that we would become part of that story and not just pull God, make him small into our story. And so I want to invite you to open to Genesis 7 if you're not there yet. But this is the question we should be asking ourselves. If Enoch walked faithfully with God, 
and, and, and was no more, he never died. And if Noah says is righteous and upright and walks with God, then what is it about Enoch and Noah, about their life, that allows them to live in life in the middle of spiritual and physical death? What did they do? What, what is it? What, what's the secret recipe? You know, the KFC, like what is it that they did that walked with God? that was able to, in the middle of the curse, this is what the whole narrative is, is really needing to spotlight to us as we're watching all this spiral, 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 and then we see this one countercurrent. What are they doing? What, what have they done that they have walked with God and escaped a spiritual and physical death? That's the question. I was so bad at that game, Sardines. Remember in middle school when all the kids would like hide backwards? It was like hide and go seek, but backwards. And you'd be walking with your buddies and there'd be like seven of you. And you'd be like, wait, there's only six. And then there'd be five. And you'd be like, wait, where? And they're all like supposed to be hiding in the, the the people who are winning are all off in the closet or something somewhere else. And you're like the last one standing because you can't figure it out. And this is what the thing, you're supposed to be watching Noah and Enoch and be like, what do they know? What are they getting here? This is the passage. All right, so Genesis 7, verse 1, uh, it says, The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. So there's something in the Bible that is called the law of uh, first uh, mention. The law of first mention. The law of first, first mention means that the first time that something shows up in the Bible, you're supposed to pay attention to it because it's, it's, um, it's not flippant. It's going to show up here for a very specific purpose because he's going to build the hyperlink. He's going to build that definition over the whole reading of the Bible. And he's going to start talking about this topic. And he never mentions it before. He's going to start talking about it now. And he means that. He's, he meant to not talk about it then. He means to start talking about it now. And so apparently, God wants us to know when we start talking about Noah, that there's a righteousness here. And so, so this is important because if you frame it the way that the reading has gone so far, before, there was this issue of God seeing things in Genesis 1, and then he called them what? He called them good, right? So that was the idea is that God looked out on creation. He said, let there be light. And then when the light was created, he blesses it. And he says, it is good. Now in Genesis 3, the spiral comes out of control. And by the end of Genesis 6, God looks at the world and all he sees is wickedness, raw. That's the two, two concurrent opposites. The tree of the knowledge of tov and raw, of good and evil. And so in the beginning, there was tov. He saw everything that was good. And now all he sees is wickedness. But then he looks, his eyes are cast upon this guy named Noah, and he doesn't see goodness, but he sees something called righteousness. It's different from goodness, and we might take a look at it in a minute, but, but righteousness is different from goodness. And, and so he sees Noah, and he says, this is righteous. You are righteous in your generation, is what he says. He's upright, he's blameless, he's righteous. This is what we looked at last week. Verse two, take with you, he says to Noah, seven pairs of every kind of clean animal and a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal and a male and its mate. So these are new words here, clean and unclean. This is new. Clean and unclean, verse three, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird. This is old, this is old school. This is exactly out of Genesis one. The birds, the creatures, the crawling, the male, the female, them and their mate. He's, he's reiterating, uh, he's doing a throwback of an old chapter of Genesis one. Birds, males, females, keep the various kinds alive through the, throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So that number's new. We want to watch out for that. 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe off the face of the earth every living creature that I have made. So I was trying to like quiz the, 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 the worship leaders. Our worship leaders are very talented. Did you all know that? We have above par worship leaders. I just want to go on record. Um, and so Timothy is just a, a Rolodex of just song information. And I think people might say, 
I think it's very useful. Uh, but he can impersonate all of us in the room. You don't know this. He can impersonate every celebrity he's ever heard. He just has this like audio thing. And so I just asked him, I wish he could come up here and beatbox. He's like, yeah, just beatbox it for him and tell him. But I was asking him, you know how like rap songs have throwbacks and samples to like old songs. And so we we're trying to pick out the best one. And mine was Lauryn Hill, which was like, can't take my eyes off of you. That's an old song. Did y'all know that? Some of us you know, in the 90s think that Lauryn Hill just wrote that song. Uh, you're just too good to be true. I can't take my eyes off of you, yada, 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 right? And then the other one we came up with was, was when Sting uh, wrote the song, Every Breath You Take, da, 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 da. and well, I thought Puff Daddy wrote it about Biggie, but apparently not. And so it's, it's an old song, right, with a remix or, or a mashup. And so this is the idea, right? Because the, the songs are emotional, and they're supposed to remind you of something, but then they kind of they throw you off a little bit because there's something new to it. And that's exactly what's happened in this, in this passage, is that you're seeing this kind of like, this, this kind of like fabric of Genesis 1, which is all put together right in its correct spot, and it's all in order, and it's all in rhythm, and you would have read it a million times. And then, but then this chaos flood comes, and then inside the boat, there's these fragments of the old thing, but then there's a new thing. There's, there's a remembrance and an echo of the Genesis 1 pattern, but then there's some new patterns. And so you have to ask yourself this question, like, when you talk about the idea of clean and unclean, which is very biblical stuff, I mean, that's all over Leviticus, and then 40 days and 40 nights, which number 40 is all over the Bible with regard to testing, testing in the wilderness. The Israelites were tested 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, or 40 years, excuse me, for the Israelites, and 40 days and 40 nights for Jesus. There's this testing. And so, so what the author is doing here is he, he's reminding us, first of all, is that this thing isn't like a journal written day by day of like a guy writing, you know, okay, on the first day he did this, and on the second day he did this, and on the third day he did this. No, it's like he's writing with a specific purpose. History books are written to record uh, objective facts, and they'll get nailed if you write history books that kind of sway towards the left or sway towards the right. And so the history book is supposed to present the New Deal as this awesome landmark time when the government kind of helped out the poor and relieved, you know, uh, you know, economic calamity. But then also it's supposed to be presented to all the little sixth graders or whatever that it was also an expansion of government into welfare politics, which is, might be a good or bad thing, right? So, the, so there has to be this objective thing that a history book does. But the, but the Bible is not written to be an objective history book to give information. It's, it's, it's a covenant book to offer revelation to people that would have faith and eyes to see it. So, so what Moses, we assume, or somebody did, is they sat there in Leviticus, and they're not asking the question, how do I give them all the information they need to know about why the cosmos was created? He sat there and written, what do the readers need to understand to realize they are a covenant people called out to be a royal priesthood into the nations? Oh, that's how I'll write the seven days. Does that make sense? So, so the Bible is not written in the language of science and history. It's written in the language of worship. And it's meant to, to show us and re- reveal to us not the answers that we need about the big mysteries of life, but to understand the character and covenant of God. And so what is he saying? He's saying that uh, in this passage, we'll read on, but he's saying that, the, that, that God is a covenant-cutting God, and the way that God, you ask yourself, how does the fishing line of blessing and curse get separated in the middle of a you know, a flood storm. And he's saying, this is the answer. He says, the answer is people are going to align and covenant with me through promises, testing, and delivery. That, that whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament or through Jesus or even now, that anybody that knows anything about God knows that God is a God of promises. You can't read the Bible without understanding the whole crux of the whole thing is not about you and me. It's about the promise and will that thing get delivered. And, 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 and the glory and the worship all goes to the fact that God in the pages of the Bible always answers his covenant promises. 
He always, this is what the Bible is trying to communicate to us, is that we can trust in the character of God, not the circumstances, but in who God is, because he, he is always yesterday, today, and tomorrow too, will always answer his covenant promises. So this is what he's getting at in this remix of a Bible, or a remix of, of a Genesis 1 and, and even into, uh, into Chronicles and other books. He's going, you're going to bring these clean and unclean animals on here. Why? Why? Because God is not just building a boat, he's building a tabernacle. He's trying to have you enter in by the blood of the lamb. And they don't know those words yet, but the writer wants you to hyperlink back once you get into February and you're reading in Exodus or Deuteronomy that he's always been doing the same thing. He's drawing people to himself. And in the middle of his character, the flood is sort of arbitrary. He's like, I'm not really interested in communicating the flood as much as I'm interested in communicating my heart and my character. I want you to know that the covenant-cutting God is inviting you to draw near. I want you to know that the covenant-cutting God is not just to get you into a mansion, but to get you into a boat of providence and promise. I'm not here to give you a Rolls Royce or a Tesla or to get you rich and famous or get you the wife you've always wanted or the husband you No, I've called to draw you in back to what I promised in the garden and I will not relent in what I'm doing. So I'm calling you near to me and you're bringing this, this sacrificial system. We don't know about it yet, but it's gonna teach more about it. Then two, uh, I'm going to test it. I'm going to test it. And maybe in your life right now, you're in a testing season and he's telling you that any promise in the hands of the covenant people will be tested. Noah was tested, Abraham was tested, Jesus was tested, and you're tested. And this is just how covenant-cutting God works, and it will be delivered. This is the message that he's, he's trying to bring. So there'll be more on that in a moment. Verse 5. Every, every couple of passages, verse 5, it says this, and Noah did all the Lord commanded. This is very important. This is very important. If you look at the, if, if it is a song, right, and there's verse and there's a chorus and there's a verse and a chorus and a verse and a chorus, it's very short, but Genesis 7, the chorus of this passage is that Noah obeyed God. That's the chorus. Chorus is the refrain. It brings you home. It reminds you of the purpose. It tells you what the verses are there for. And the verses are here for verse 5, Noah obeyed the command. In the old way, when Genesis 1 was happening, he was creating things, creating all this stuff and canvassing stuff and creating the garden and creating the cosmos. And in the, in the middle of everything, the chorus was always, and it was good. That's how you knew something happened. Move, move, move. Good, 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 good. In this passage, which is now beyond the curse and beyond the chaos, there's this new pattern that's going to take shape of God's will on the earth. That God's going to speak something, and instead of it just being good, that the faith of Noah is going to respond with a yes. The chorus of the passage of Genesis 7 is faith. That God is, excuse me, Noah is responding to the covenant promises of God by obeying what they say. Verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. So this is really redundant. This is for a purpose. I'll get into that in a second. But verse 8, pairs of clean and unclean animals. We've heard this before. Clean and unclean animals of the birds and all creatures move along the ground, male and female, same thing, Genesis 1, as well as Genesis 6 and 7, came to Noah. They entered the ark, and God, God had commanded them. And after uh, seven days, the floodwaters came to the earth. So uh, there's a public speaking guy, a coach. Maybe I should have listened to him more back when I took the class. But, you know, they say, if you want to communicate something, you say it three times. You say what you're going to say, you say what you say, and then you say what you said. Right? This is the idea of redundancy. And actually, this is not because people are, are dumb or, or, or dim-witted or whatever. Like, this is actually really solid communication. My father-in-law, who is five times the leader that I, I am, is, is this guy. Uh, and, and, and you see it the way that he, he communicates. Communication is an important, important thing when it comes to leadership and, and all points of life and marriage and other things. Because, you know, the communication, you don't have that, you don't have anything. And you're supposed to say things multiple times. Kyra's dad used to say things seven times. And in the beginning, I was like, why is this guy talking to me? 
Like, I don't understand anything. You know, I used to take it as insult. And then I'm realizing he's a genius because people don't remember things unless you say it seven times. He'd be like, when you get out of the condo, because we would like stay in the house or whatever for vacation, he'd be like, you take the key, you got to take it to 38C. 38C is the mailbox that's left of 37C and 36C, but you don't want to go in 36C or 37C, you want to take it and put it in 38C. He's like, don't forget when you leave, you want to go down to the mailbox, you're going to look for a couple numbers, and when you see 38C, that's the one you want. You want the one that says 38C, not the 37C. He would say it 17 times. Right? So it's like, I, and I realize it's not an insult. Like, I do enough with teaching and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, people don't listen to you. You know, like, you got to say it seven times. You know, so God is, is like that. And so in one way, redundancy is just for emphasis and memory. But the other side of it is, is it is for poetry. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, um, and I'll show this in a second, but Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are mirrored backwards in Genesis 6 and Genesis 7. Genesis 6, which we're in right now, is talking about the local, the garden, whereas Genesis 2 was talking about the garden. Whereas in Genesis 8, when the waters recede, it's going to talk about the macro, the stars and the moon and the heavens, and it's really showing a kind of parallelism, okay? But, but what's, what, what's the point here? The point here is that if it's, it's a verse and a chorus and a verse and a chorus, the story is being propelled, and here's the point. He's telling you how to interpret what's going on by repeating some things and then changing other things. He's repeating some things in the story and then changing other things. What is the same in the story is that every time he's talking, Here's what I'm going to say, here's what I've said, or here's what I'm saying, and here's what I've said. Every time Noah gets on the boat, it's like he gets on the boat five times. Matter of fact, I wrote it down. He, uh, he, he actually enters the boat in the series of chapter six, seven, and eight four times Noah gets on the boat. It says Noah gets on the boat four times. You're like, Dave, I know, it's 37C, I got it. Okay, he gets on the boat, right? Says it four times. He says the rain is coming three times. He says the water prevails five times. And then he says, the receding water happens. He's like saying it over and over again. You're like, God, okay, I get it. Like, you know, you're repeating it. But that's a song. That's the way the song works because it wants you to remember it. He wants to have an emotional maybe feeling about it each and every time. But even more importantly than that is he is trying to reveal what is the engine of the story. And the engine of the story is not the animals because the animals appear in everything. The animals don't move the story forward. The water actually doesn't move the story forward. This story is not about water and animals, and it's not even about a person. It is about verse 5. It is about the chorus. It is about the fact that God is telling Noah what to do, and Noah is obeying. That's what this story is about. This is a story. This is not, when you go and teach us in Sunday school, this is not a story about a lucky guy who had a fun little adventure with animals. And it's not about a ticked-off God who's killing everybody. That is information you need to understand and discern the story, but the story is not propelled and motorized by the animals of the flood. It's motorized by faith. The engine of this story is how can I walk with God? And the answer is do as Noah did. Watch Noah and watch him, watch him follow. And this is a story about, not about how to get out of the flood. This is a story about how to get close to God. This is a story about a guy who already was close to God and then a flood happened to come. Oh, and by the way, even when the flood stops, there's still gonna be deserts and pharaohs and enemies and plagues and, and, and Augustines and killers and, and, and empires and so forth. You're always going to have flood type of things. So the story's not about the flood. The story is about faith and will a person respond to God. That's what this whole thing is about. So we find our, our, our kind of conclusion here. It says... Uh, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day, this is so cool, by the way. If you look at, I'll fast forward to the next chapter, but in chapter 8, it says the water's received, and it's on the first day of the first month of the 601st year. And you're supposed to go, 
dude, how do I know what an unclean animal is and how do I know even what a calendar? According to what calendar are we talking about? And what, what they've embedded here is that we're heading towards a Jewish new year. Rosh Hashanah is the first year, the first day, the first month, the first 601st thing. This thing is not about a flood. This thing is about a new temple and a tabernacle of God dwelling with man again. This is what he's trying to lift our eyes to see. In verse 11, the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth. Very Genesis 1. That's this great deep and the hovering. Okay, and that, actually, I shouldn't say Genesis 1. It's Genesis 2. This is what he's doing. He's going to riff off of Genesis 2, and it's going to be like a, a remix. He's going to keep the chords, and he's going to keep the basic uh, structure of the song, but he's going he's gonna to overlay it with something new. This is what he's doing. Okay, so in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on the day, all the springs of the great deep births forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were open. So that's a new riff. That's different than what it was. Verse 12, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Then watch this. Verse 13, on the very day Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and his wives uh, of his three sons, entered the ark again. God, it's like the fourth time. I thought they were on the boat. They get off, they get on. It's like, no, the, you know, for seven days he gathered the animals. Actually, the animals were drawn to him, and now they're on the boat. This is the picture that he wants to leave with you. So his, bro- his, his sons are on the boats with their wives, they had with them every wild animal from Genesis 1 and 2, according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings, pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life to them, the Ruah breath of life, which was the very breath that was breathed into the nostrils of Noah. We're very focused and fixated on that. What happens to that? It came to Noah and entered the ark. Life has entered the ark. Life has entered the ark. Not just Noah, but his whole family. Not just his family, but the promises. Not just the promises, but the blessing. Not just, not just the people, but the animals. The whole thing gets on the boat with him. In verse 16, the animals going in were male and female and every living thing. And God had commanded Noah. And then it says, then the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. The Lord sealed it. The Lord, the Lord agreed with it. He blessed it. He called it good. He called it, he, he's doing something there that, 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 that he hasn't done before. Matter of fact, the only time we've ever seen shut him in was referring to Adam's side that was shut in after it was, uh, that woman was, was made out of the side of Adam. A covenant was cut and, and then it said it shut in the side of Adam. And so what has just happened is that, 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 Instead of just a covenant being formed with a man and a woman, a covenant is being formed with God and man, and there's a shutting in. That God is a faithful covenant partner to fulfill his promises even when man is failing. What is the story about? The story is not really about the flood, is it? And it's not really about a guy who gets out of trouble. The story is about a God who's putting the garden back into the earth through a boat. And if we read it the right way, we're actually ending on a happier note than the end of Genesis 2 because God didn't shut Adam into the garden, but he did shut Noah onto the boat. And he's fulfilling, he's establishing a covenant promise. And we'll work through Genesis you know, 12 when Abraham hits the scene and how he's going to start to become the faithful covenant partner that nobody else is on all five counts that God commands man to do. But what we're supposed to hear, see from here is, is that God has established a past garden on the boat in a future Levitical tabernacle on the boat. And Noah has brought him himself and his promises because of faith, somehow because of faith, because he's walked with God, has not just survived the flood, but has actually returned him and his family to the very garden of Eden where he's a priest where he fulfills his name to bring rest and comfort to the earth. His name has, he he has actually uh, reached within that boat what Adam never reached. 
In Genesis 2, there was unfinished business because God reached a rest in heaven, and it said that God created the Sabbath and rested his feet because his work was done. But man never entered that rest because he sinned. And so God rested, but man failed to rest. He didn't complete his task, which was to create a home of the house that God made. So Noah's name means rest. And what has just happened here is that God, somehow, through faith, through the offering that, that Noah will give once he gets off of the boat, has established a home in the middle of the boat and a tabernacle in the middle of the ocean. This is what the story is about. If I could sum it up for you in this, this is the statement I would leave with you. If you read the passage the way it's meant to be read, the story is not about a flood and it's not about animals. It's about faith. And if you ask yourself the question, why is Noah saved and the others aren't? The answer is this. Noah was not saved ultimately by the ark. Noah was saved by grace. This is what the, this is what the, the story is, is leading us to understand. You have to ask yourself, because at the very end, let me just read this passage and, and it'll illustrate it, I think, better than I can explain it. Remember in Stranger Things, there's an upside down world? Remember that? Upside down, you guys watch that, Stranger Things? It's like all the good stuff, but it's like completely upside down, it's backwards. So in, in 11, in verse 11, you have this picture of this boat. Everything's right. It's Eden on the water. It's perfect. It's shalom. It's a recreation of a new beginning. Now watch this. Verse 17, for 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth and the waters. Remember how people were supposed to increase and multiply? Not so. On the earth, there was an increase of chaos. They lifted the ark high above the earth and the waters rose increased greatly on the earth. And instead of people, there was chaos. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that lived and moved on the land perished. The curse was at its, at its apex. Birds, livestock, animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, all of mankind, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. What a juxtaposition. What a huge contrast statement between what's on the boat and what's under the boat. The difference for a family for a network of animals, for the blessing to be on the boat versus it's, it's, it's a divergent path. It's of no return. It's a splitting of the course between what's on the boat and, what, and what's not on the boat. And what's on the boat is Genesis 2. It's, it's, he brings the animals just like he brought the animals to Adam. And, and he, he shuts him in into the covenant of grace. And he, uh, he, he, is, he is reforming this covenant within Genesis 2, but underneath it is, is all... The, the upside-down uh, emptiness of, of what Genesis could be but didn't come to be. And so this is what we, we, we look back on. We're supposed to ask ourselves this question, if I get the sermon and sentence back up. Noah is not saved by the ark because we're asking ourselves the question. So how did Noah get up there? That's what we're supposed to be asking. How, how did that happen? And, and, and when you think about it, you're like, well, he's saved by the boat, right? I mean, it's the people on the boat versus the people that are not on the boat or the animals that are on the boat and the animals that are not on the boat. But that's not really true, right? Because how does he have the boat other than the fact that he followed God to build it? He wouldn't have known to build the boat. And the whole story backstracked to understand that he wouldn't have had the boat unless he followed God. But he wouldn't have followed God. He wouldn't have known to follow God other than this verse. And we'll go back to it here. I think I had it earlier in my notes. But the introduction of Noah, the, uh, the law of first mention in chapter 6, verse 8 in Noah's biography, we get a glimpse of the sardines. We get a picture, like Enoch, it just says he disappeared. So we don't know what happened to him, but we do know what happened to Noah. And we see his life on display to invite us, not about him, to live a story about God and us in covenant faithfulness. And this is what it says about Noah. It says, Noah found grace. In some translations, it says favor, but the real word here is interchangeable. He found grace. He found grace in God. How did Noah get saved? He was on the boat when the rain came. 
but how did Noah build the boat? Because he followed what God said. But why didn't you know, Noah follow what God said? Because he trusted God. Because somehow he knew that God was still good. He, he knew that God was going to be faithful to his promise. He, he looked back on the promise to Abel, and he looked back on Enoch, and he told himself in his name, and he decided, I'm going to trust God. And he didn't get saved the minute he stepped on the boat. He actually got saved the minute he started trusting God. This story is not about the guy that built a boat and got out of the water. This is a story about a guy who always trusted God with everything in his life. And then when the crisis hit, he was in the right place at the right time. Not because of the boat, but because he decided ahead of time to trust in God. So here's the secret for the person you know and I know that walks with God. They don't walk with God because they're disciplined. They walk with God because they understand he's good. And anybody that has walked with God through any kind of cancer or turmoil or church split or divorce or any problem in their life, they probably learned how to trust God before the crisis hit. And the ark was being built before the storm even came. It happened before the wood even got collected because it happened between Noah's ears and in Noah's heart. And he learned to trust God because he is good, because he is faithful. He learned to know that it was a get to not have. Here's where Evan Almighty got it wrong. Noah never preached to the unconverted to get on the boat. Isn't that cruel that he never did that? Didn't you, you know, shouldn't he be begging people to get on the boat? You know, John Goodman's such a jerk, he doesn't realize you got to get on the boat. No, it's not the point, because here's the point, right? Because the ark didn't save Noah and couldn't have saved John Goodman if this was the metaphor extended. Because people don't get saved into heaven because of fear of hell. It wouldn't have kept them there and it wouldn't have done the job. The ark isn't what saves Noah or his family. It's the trust in the one who built the ark in the first place. So here's the secret to the people that follow God in and out of seasons. They're not doing it because they love the politics of Jesus or because they want to get into heaven or because they want the mansion on the hill. They're doing it because they just love God. And what the story is inviting us to do is not just to escape the, the treachery of the flood, but to enter into that promise, that trust of God. And not to get into the mansion. Not to get into the best life now and the thing that all my problems disappear to get on to the Genesis 1 promise that he is faithful to fulfill his promises in my life, not mine. His desires, not mine. To be a faithful covenant partner, to fill the earth, to multiply, to subdue it, to spread out, to go and make disciples, to teach them and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's not inviting people of faith to get out of hell. He's inviting them to get people into the kingdom of God to live in the covenant of God again, to live in the garden of God again. And so it's all of it. You can't just have his presence and not the promise or the promise without the presence. It comes in one ark. And so the question is today, do you know the grace of God? Do you understand, do you understand the grace of God? I remember I was in um, Bloomington where I went to school and there's this really mad preacher guy and he's down there with the sandwich board and just these really ugly, horrible pictures, you know, about just his topic, you know, abortion. Everybody's got their topic. And then he's going after this thing. And it's like, listen, the thing is like, right, Christians like have strong opinions. It's not a bad thing to have strong opinions. It's not a bad thing to participate in politics. It's not a bad thing to want blessing and to want your kids blessed. But it's a matter of what comes first, the blessing or the blessed or the gift or the giver, Right. And so we go down there, and he's got a microphone, and I mean, maybe his heart's right, and he wants people to turn and, and know Jesus and that kind of thing. But, but, but I remember, it's like, the, one of the guys, my friend Nate Todd, goes down there. We were playing Mario Kart because we're so mature. That was before I said mature. I was just eating, you know, stuffing instead of eating cranberries back then. We little lad. But, and so, and then we, we go down there, and I'm just, I don't know what to say, but I'm just so agitated. I'm like, stop it. Just stop all this. This is ridiculous. What are you doing, you know? And uh, anyways, and so I think one of the questions the guy was asking him, like, hey, like, how many people, you know, how long have you been doing? Oh, it's 25 years, you know, we're leveling with the guy. 
How many people have you seen come to Jesus because of this ministry? In 20 years, he's like, zero people have come to Jesus out of this sandwich board ministry. And somebody was just in, you know, my friend was just like, have you considered a different method? You know, like, have you considered a different way? And, and so Jesus talks about that. He's like, there are seeds on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the ground. And arcs don't get seeds to grow. The Holy Spirit gets seeds to grow. Grace gets seeds to grow. That's, what, that's the secret of Enoch's success, if there is success. And, 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 and so... And so this is, I think, what, what, what really strikes us about the thing, if we understand that the, the, the core, the motor of, of, of the boat, is, of the story, is that, is that this thing is about grace. This is a story that, that, is, that is ultimately um, about grace because fear of the flood and, and, and fear of judgment and fear of justice and condemnation, it's, it's not enough to get you through. It's only the love of God. It's only the grace of God. Do you know grace today? That's my intentional question. Do you know grace today? Do you know the grace of God today? You know, your obligation to fulfill your, your, your parents' expectations of you is not going to get you through. The fear of hell is not going to get you through. You know, and, that, and that's Jesus. I mean, he talks about hell, but I wouldn't say he preached about I would say he preached that the kingdom of heaven is near. You don't see Jesus with a sandwich board saying, repent, the kingdom of hell is close to you. He's saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven, the boat's close to you. Oh, man, if you knew about the boat, that's what this is about, the boat. This is about the God on the boat. It's about the animals on the boat. I'm not here to give you a Rolls Royce. I'm here to give you a blessing from Genesis 1. I'm here to have you come home and find rest. I'm here to have you find a home in this place and find peace in this place. I'm not here to get you a Lamborghini. I didn't die for that. I came for you to have the whole blessing, to make disciples of all nations, to be a fisherman. Come and follow me. Do you want to be a fisherman? That's what he's asking you. That's what grace is asking you. And people talk about, you know, sloppy grace or, or lawlessness or legalism. And it's not really about the rules or the strictness. It's really about the purpose and, and the presence of God. Because anything, honestly, anything that doesn't revolve around the covenant promise of what God is doing, it ultimately is just made by man anyway, and it is legalism or it's lawlessness. It's not about what's the most I can do or the least I can do. It's about who, who do I trust? Who am I looking to? Who, who, what is this about? Is this about my wonder list tasks or is it about the person? who called me by name, who wants to give me a name? Is it about the process that he's taking me through? Is, is it about the test or is it about the God in the test? Is it about the wave or is it about the God in the boat? What is your, what is your life about? Do you know grace? Do you know, do you know grace? Do you know the person of grace, not just the doctrine of grace? It's not about exit out of hell. Grace is more than that. Peter and Paul and John, they all covered their, their letters with the word grace and it had more to do with Christ than the chasm. It's not just about, oh, there's a chasm, you can't jump across it. Grace lets you get into heaven. That's not what it's about. That's the least of which, it's a reductionist view of what it's about. What it's actually about is grace is, is the only power that lets fallen, broken people like us ever trust back to God. If you trust God and need God today, and you can profess that with your heart and your mind, that's not you, that's a gift. Somebody gave that to you. Somebody put that in you. Somebody, and it wasn't your grandma. It was something more than that. You have an encounter with grace, and that's the only thing that will ever see you through in this world. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace. It's the fact that he's so good. And this is what we should be talking about. This is what we should remind ourselves about. It's about his goodness. It's not about the fact, you know, that I ended up in youth group and get a flirt to convert with Kyra and ended up in the right youth group with the right charismatic leader or whatever. It's not about that. It's the fact that once I got there, I knew that God had done something in my life and he was the one that was the author perfecter, not, not me. You know why? Because there's so many people with rich Lamborghinis and mansions and they don't have any grace and they can't count the blessings. And we gotta be careful with our language. We say, count your blessings and what are your blessings and be blessed and... You know, I blessed them by sending them a tip. That's not blessing, because you can be rich and have a tip without a blessing. The blessing is peace with God. The blessing is trust with God. And when the rain comes, which it will, and the storms comes, which they do, 
it would be questioned, will I be found trusting God? The person, the person that's saved is the one that trusts before the storm, not in the middle of it. Trusting in the middle of it usually doesn't see us through. It's trusting before and during and after. Do you know the grace of God? I'll invite you to stand and uh, have the band come forward. We're going to respond um, today. But I want you to evaluate that question about the question of grace. Man, maybe you forgot about it. Maybe I forgot about it. Maybe, maybe we, we've been going through the motions. Uh, maybe maybe it, we, we have fallen into an obligatory, an obligatory faith, and that's just not, not what, what we were called to do. That's not who we were made to follow. And so I want to just have you think about that word grace and think about the, per, the person of grace. Maybe the definition this morning is that grace is just the power that allows you to trust and need God again. And, and really life's too hard, it's too short, and there's too many storms of chaos for us to withstand anything unless we, we start from that foundation. That's what Enoch had, that's what Abel had, that's what Noah had. They found grace with, with, with God. And they followed it and carried it out and brought the gopher wood and they built the cubits and all that stuff, but it didn't start with the cubits in the, in the boat. It started with the grace. Do you remember the grace? Do you, do, you, do you see his hand? Not do you remember to thank God that you have a wife or something. No, I'm talking about do you see his hand talking to you, doing what he's always been doing, bringing about a non-earthly kingdom in your life? Is your life more than the bottom line and the dollars and the cents? Is it for something more? And even justice isn't enough. Just to get orphans off the street, that's not enough. It's, it's the call to be at peace, even if nothing goes my way or he never gives you another thing. Do you have a peace and a trust with God? That's what needs to be settled in your heart today. And I want to invite you to that. No matter how long you've been at church, to ask yourself that question. Where is grace? Where is, where is the person of Jesus? If it was just him on the boat and nothing else, would that be enough? It has to start there. There is more to come. He's doing great things. He's building you up. He's not let you down. But it all has to start with grace or it all will fall. Thank you for the foundation of grace as the basement of our life, of our church, Lord God, that we would never become bored or apathetic with just your goodness, your power, your raw goodness. In the cancer, in the storm, in the middle of the thing, your grace is sufficient. It's the thing that we look to. It's the thing that sustains us in Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.